to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 2 in my series on the book of Job. And if you listened to the last episode, you may already be wondering why I haven't taken a look at the problem of suffering in the book of Job, since it is the most obvious problem. Well, that is certainly something the book of Job deals with and um, I'm definitely going to look at it at some point in the series, but it is not what the whole book is about. In fact, I think the book of Job is about so much more than all the obvious ways that people have tended to read it, which is one of the many reasons uh, why I'm doing this series in the first place. I want to open up new ways of looking at Job, and maybe some of those new ways of looking at Job will open up new ways of looking at other things, maybe even life itself. So here's another episode that doesn't deal with the problem of suffering in the book of Job. And uh, to get us going, I want to pose a ridiculous question. What can Johann Sebastian Bach teach us about the book of Job? Okay, the answer to this is obviously yes, at least if we're looking for a literal explanation, nothing. As far as I know, Bach, unlike Isaac Newton, didn't spend an awful lot of time writing biblical commentaries. I'm serious, by the way. I'm not sure if you knew this. Isaac Newton wrote commentaries on the Bible. But that's really not the point I'm trying to make. Anyway, as I started exploring and explaining in the previous episode of this podcast series on the book of Job, my main aim here is is to read the book of Job literarily, not literally. So I'm siding with Bach over... Isaac Newton here, since Newton was a horrific literalist. As you know, from the way that Bach influenced Beethoven, Prockel Harum, Billy Joel, Katy Perry, and pretty much every other musician who's ever lived, albeit often indirectly, and sometimes without said musicians being aware of it, Bach is one of the most impressive and amazing composers in music history. And he is particularly noteworthy for writing what we now know as polyphonic music. but he was certainly brilliant at composing this kind of music. The basic idea of polyphonic music is found in its name. That word polyphonic comes from the Greek word polyphonos, from polu meaning many and phone meaning voice or sound. The idea is simple, many voices or sounds. Multiple voices or sounds work together in polyphonic music. It's music that has this really complex texture to it. You can have several different independent melodies operating simultaneously, and remarkably, all of these melodies can still produce something holistic. The profoundness of the listening experience comes not just from hearing the finished product, although of course that's important, but from paying attention to all the little pieces that make up the final piece, the final composition, all the melodic ideas that are woven together to form the total musical picture. Also, because it's complex, interpretations for how to play and perform the music can actually be fairly widely varied. This tends to be true for any piece of music in some sense, but generally speaking, the greater the complexity of a piece of music, the more are the interpretive possibilities. Polyphonic music suggests that every voice in it gets to keep its own identity. 
it gets to be its own thing, and yet it still also gets to be part of the whole. This is, I think, vital. Um, you need to be able to understand the part played by every voice to be able to understand the whole. And more than that, you need to be able to appreciate that every part doesn't merely serve the whole. It, it is still whole, wholly itself, wholly independent. Somehow, each melody has its own unique identity. And to make matters more provocative, it may turn out that the individual voices in the music may not ultimately serve the great whole. It's no wonder, then, that polyphonic music was at one point regarded by the Catholic Church to be worryingly heretical. And you may think that I'm joking, but I really am not. Polyphonic music, to make sense, tended to need to sound a little lighter than, than the sort of more solemn-sounding worship music that the Catholic Church was, um, was more comfortable with. Um, and for all those melodies to work together in polyphonic music, levity was not just an option, but in some sense a requirement. So some rather serious people in the church complained because there's nothing new under the sun. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to complain about polyphonic music for being frivolous and impious, and so on. In 1322, Pope John XXII spoke against so-called unbecoming elements of musical innovation, although Pope Clement uh, VI later on seemed to think that these so-called unbecoming elements of musical innovation weren't really that bad. Interestingly enough, though, uh, the Second Vatican Council seems to side with Gregorian chant over polyphony because maybe there's something alarming about polyphonic music after all. Maybe the voices we encounter in polyphonic music exist in their own right without any higher meaning. Maybe they just happen to fit into the larger picture, but this might not be the intention, so to speak, of each individual line of melody. If we listen to the music from um, a kind of God's ear perspective, the final outcome may make you believe that each melody exists solely for the sake of the final piece. But if you were to step down to the level of each melody and follow its ups and downs and quavers and crotchets and semi-breves, um, you would be more likely to say that each individual melody has its own thing going for it. This is possibly what makes polyphonic music so controversial. It challenges the idea of hermeneutic control. By the way, this is something that we all tend to struggle with. Like when we're reading a text like the text of the book of Job, we do tend to assume a kind of God's eye perspective. And we can see all the parts playing out in a particular way and the meaning is constructed in a particular way. But for any character going through what they're going through, this is not their experience. In fact, your experience of life is more likely to be that of the actual singular melody in the polyphonic life that you live. You're not exactly sure how it fits into the whole quite a lot of the time. So what this means really is that your subjective perspective is going to matter immensely. It's going to determine how you understand what you're perceiving. When you listen to polyphonic music, you can concentrate on one melody at a time, one voice, and you can keep on listening out for that voice. And then, quite miraculously, you can turn your attention to another voice, and then another voice, and then finally you can step back to see the whole thing, the whole work of art. 
and yet each individual voice remains itself. It's, it's kind of an artwork of its own. And the book of Job, as it turns out, is exactly this sort of text. It's a polyphonic text. When you keep this idea in play, this idea that Job is a polyphonic text, you can actually keep the idea that there is still one author of the book of Job predominantly, and yet he just allows different voices to work together, much in the same way that Bach allows different melodies to work together in, a, in his polyphonic text. To explain what I mean here, let me uh, maybe explain a little bit what a homophonic text is. Well, obviously, there's that word homophonic. As you would assume by the fact that it sounds like the word homophone, homophonic music uh, is when there is just one voice, and this one voice is then supported and confirmed by all other voices. That is, homophony is when all the sounds are so harmonious and congruent that when you hear the final thing, it's, it's just a kind of sonic version of pure agreement, pure alignment, and in some sense, pure hermeneutic control. Well, a homophonic text, which you could also call a, a monologic text, is when the author asserts control over the overall argument of the text. In other words, even while there are different voices at play, they seem to cohere in such a way that the final meaning of the text is kind of guaranteed. Most texts that we have experiences of are, in fact, homophonic or monologic. They tend to um, assert the dominance or the control of an author. I spoke a while ago on this podcast about Chekhov's gun, and it's, it's this basic dramatic principle that says that every setup needs a payoff. And well, that's, that's a really fantastic principle for writing a homophonic or monologic text. In the end, in a homophonic text, every thread counts in a very particular way. Every part helps to build the final picture. So, in a homophonic text, every part of the work exists entirely for the sake of the final work. While a polyphonic text can allow you to view the text from the inside and the outside, a homophonic text, in a way, presumes that there really is just a, there is only one position, and it is a privileged position from which you should be looking at things, at all things, in fact, and listening to things. But, obviously, this is not what a polyphonic text does. In a polyphonic text, there really is no obvious privileged position, and the individual voices do not merely exist to guarantee the final artwork and the final meaning. They don't merely serve the big picture. They do serve the big picture, of course, in some way, but that's not their only purpose, right? Instead, they have their own unique integrity and intention and purpose. You might want to reduce their meaning to one final meaning in the final assessment, but to do this would be to betray the structure and nature of the original text. Well, Job, as I've said, is this sort of text. It's a polyphonic text. Trying to make all the pieces fit into a clean, neat, homophonic, monologic utterance is actually to do a kind of violence to the text. You may not like this so-called so unbecoming form of musical and textual innovation, but it is nevertheless how the whole thing actually works. You're not liking it will not change the fact that this is how it works, just as Job's not liking his suffering made uh, not the smallest difference to the reality 
he was faced with. To presume a privileged position over the text is to dis disconnect yourself from the actual way that the text is composed. In fact, just as an aside, I think people do this with the Bible all the time. They commit what I would call hermeneutic violence. You can't read the Bible as a neat homophonic text. It really is, in its actual character, too much of a mishmash. And I think it's exactly because of this that it's so insanely wonderful. There are wonderful overlaps and there may be a kind of trajectory, and there is, there is a sort of narrative trajectory of this collective sort of um, library of books, but the trajectory is not nearly as neat as a lot of people have made it out to be. It is the most hyperlinked book in history, the Bible that is, but it still requires us to see that difference plays amidst all that similarity and simultaneity. To assume that the Bible needs to read as a monologic text is a form of hermeneutical violence. And I think it takes a lot of the color and wonder out of the text. It also creates all sorts of fantastically huge theological problems where you have people trying to unpack all the, you know, the neat details when there are things that don't necessarily perfectly align. So, anyway, a polyphonic text like Job has three main characteristics, which I'll name first and then I'll explain. The first is that it presents us with a dialogic sense of truth, as opposed to a monologic sense of truth. The second, which I've already briefly covered, is that the author's position is not prioritized over other opinions offered in the text. And the third is that there is no completely satisfactory form of closure. So let's look at the first idea, which is this. The book of Job offers us a dialogic sense of truth rather than a monologic sense of truth. Monologic truth loves systems of thought and can be comprehended only by a single consciousness or a single-minded consciousness. Even if there are um, complexities and dynamics playing around in the text, a monologic sense of truth will try and iron out all the wrinkles and arrive at something neatly digestible, focused, conclusive, and clear. But a dialogic sense of truth assumes that this is, in some sense, a betrayal of the actual nature of the truth. A dialogic sense of truth relativizes not the truth itself, but our relationship with the truth. This is not sort of trying to um, play into that postmodern era of saying, well, everything is relative. Because if you're saying that, you're saying it's relative to something. What is it relative to? Well, the dialogic sense of truth relativizes not the truth itself, as I've said, but our relationship with the truth. We only know the truth as we are. We understand only through ourselves, through our own limited, finite perspectives, through the lenses that we ourselves are to ourselves. And the same goes for pretty much anything else. And yes, in a sense, we know um, that what we know can certainly be true. But it is always only, because of our finite and limited perspective, a limited take on the truth. So again, this is not the postmodern relativist position. I'm not saying that anything goes because it really doesn't and actually no one actually believes that. I'm saying not that the truth is relative, but that our understanding of the truth 
is relative. And that's not necessarily comfortable to think about, but it does make sense. Even the fact that some of you are listening to this and thinking, but he's wrong or he's leaving something out would only be proof of what I'm trying to say. Every time you criticize someone for, for having a limited perspective, you are merely filling in gaps that they themselves are overlooking. And you then yourself are probably overlooking more than a few things in the process. A dialogic sense of truth assumes that the only single consciousness that could fully comprehend reality would be God's consciousness. But no matter how enlightened we might turn out to be, and we can, I think, hope that we will all be more enlightened or certainly in some form enlightened um, as we walk through the world, we will never possess that God consciousness, the consciousness that the, the sort of consciousness that God has. Jesus even assumed this when he was recorded to have remarked that there are things that the Father knows that even the Son doesn't have a clue about. What we have, what we are stuck with in this world, is a world after the Tower of Babel. We've got millions of uh, languages and multiple tongues and a gazillion perspectives and seven billion odd totally individually unique consciousnesses. So, our conception of our access to truth needs to cohere with this. It's got to fit with how things actually are. And our perspective on truth needs to cohere with our actual relationship with it. Again, I'm not saying in postmodern fashion that truth is relative. What I'm saying here is that if there is any truth, then we are clearly relative to it. And this is really just how the game works. We do not need to keep our monologic truth unless we are okay with lies. So, this is what the dialogic sense of truth assumes. Not that truth is multiple, but that we are multiple, and that we are, at least we hope <laughs> we are, in conversation with each other. We're all together trying to figure out what in God's name is going on around here. Dialogic truth presumes not just the unavoidability of multiple consciousnesses, but in some sense, the necessity of them. We, we participate in the truth in a kind of Platonist fashion, as I see it. And through participating in the truth, we become more real. Which is actually, I think, what a lot of the, the book Pinocchio is about, or the, you know, the film. The more he tells the truth, the more real he becomes. And it's a participation in the truth that makes us real. And this is the sense of truth that the book of Job happens to follow. So linked to all of this is the idea that in a polyphonic text, the author's position is not prioritized over the other positions offered in the text. The author of a polyphonic text um, puts into practice this idea that our knowledge of the truth requires multiple consciousnesses. This is why, you know, like even in basic businesses, you have a board meeting. It's terribly boring, but the idea is that the more perspectives you have, the more dialogue you have, the more likely you are going to be to reach some form of sort of helpful truth, a way of, of moving through the world. So yeah, uh, the author in of the book of Job is trying to account for multiple perspectives on truth in his book. He cannot, obviously, account for every possible consciousness, but he can include more than one consciousness. And he can take each consciousness seriously, at least as seriously as it takes itself. So, for instance, when we read about the God character in the book of Job and how he seems to just 
utterly dismiss Job's friends. He basically tells them to get screwed at the book of, end of the book of Job. Um, and we may treat this as a, a really fantastic opportunity to to ignore everything that Job, Job's friends have said. We might kind of say, you see, you know, the truth is monological after all. But clearly, the author wants us to engage with Job's friends, uh, even with the wrong things. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't have gone through such trouble to, um, to record and invent their words, depending on your perspective on that. With that in mind, maybe the God character doesn't get to have the last word here after all. And also, those wretched friends of Job may not have been wrong about everything. We have to entertain this possibility. In fact, there are good reasons to believe that they may have had more than a few good points. In a monologic assessment, their voices don't matter because the big other says they don't. But in a polyphonic text like this, the dialogue is essential, not only to its structure, but to its meaning and to its unfolding. We should be careful not to finalize the meaning of the text, not because we, we can never know anything and we're all paralyzed by the incomprehensibility of everything, Jacques Derrida, you know, style, but because we do know some things. And yet presuming that there's some few things that we know are all that there is to be known, that is to do a kind of violence, not just to the text, but actually to ourselves. We need to grow. And the text is there to help us to grow. So that's the second idea in a polyphonic text, or at least about a polyphonic text. The author's position isn't prioritized over the other positions offered in the text. This is a really amazing thing, really, because it presumes that a type of consciousness is possible that doesn't presume authorial control. And it is a type of consciousness against monological consciousness that we may all benefit from adopting. But I'll get to more on this in a moment. Then the third thing about a polyphonic text is that there is no completely satisfactory form of closure. And anyone who has ever read the book of Job will know how true that statement is. Yes, the story has a clear structure and the drama plays out in many ways rather neatly. But in terms of standard ways of plotting things, Chekhov's gun style, the book of Job is full of holes. One example of this, Satan, this is small s Satan by the way, um, which I will explain in a later episode. Satan shows up at the beginning of the book in a big way. And he's a major plot driver. But then after the prologue, he just disappears. Job doesn't mention him once. And even when God has a chance to show up towards the end of the story, he doesn't even bother to explain to Job all the behind the scenes stuff that we as readers know. So, I mean, that raises this question. What in the world is going on here? If you want perfect closure, the book of Job is just going to frustrate you because it doesn't tie up all the loose ends. It lets things be. It, it doesn't cast judgment a lot of the time. And this is, it turns out, not just a great way to read the book, but a great way to think about a new way of thinking. Polyphony is what is going on in the book of Job. And I think part of the point of the medium is that, to quote Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message, or at least the medium is part of the message. Here's where I introduce the idea of possessing a polyphonic mind. What I notice 
in the Western world is a profound tendency to insist that we all should be thinking monologically or homophonically in some way. We're encouraged to have clear conclusions and, and absolute closure on everything. And there are certainly, insofar as culture is concerned, privileged positions. And, and everything one has to agree, and it sounds horribly close uh, to something that Nietzsche critiqued, which is what he, he referred to as the herd morality. There are sensible reasons for this human tendency, and I, I'm, not, I'm not about to advocate the, the so-called view from nowhere, because I don't think a view from nowhere is possible. Even a view from nowhere is a view from somewhere. Even a, an attempt to be objective involves a subjective choice. Even in the classic blind people feeling an elephant story, there's someone there, usually those of us who are listening to the story, who can actually see the whole damned elephant. And in the process, sight is allotted a privileged position over blindness. And then, of course, there's someone there who presumes they can see the whole elephant. So I think that's how a lot of people handle sort of uh, critiques of, of other ideologies. They say those ideologies are only part of the elephant. Well, that is assuming <laughs> that they can see the whole elephant. That's probably uh, a pretty strong critique of pluralism because pluralism does, in some sense, assume that it's possible to see the whole picture um, and... Well, I just think that's not true. In any case, we need hierarchies. This is just one of our human needs. Um, or rather, I mean, maybe another way of putting it is that hierarchies are things that we cannot avoid. People who are frustrated by hierarchies are not frustrated by a hierarchy per se, but as far as I can tell, by bad hierarchies. A classic example would be that feminists complain about the patriarchy not because it's bad that some people are you know, in more powerful positions than, than others, but because some people abuse the power that's been given to them. Patriarchy is, I'm sad to say, unavoidable. Even if men died out and women ruled the proverbial castle, patriarchy would exist. And I know I'm you know, potentially being too simplistic here, but here is my point. My point is that we all have a perspective. We all come from somewhere and we see the world from somewhere. But sometimes, often, we are prone to privileging our own position and perspective above that of others because of no other reason than, than the fact that it is our perspective. We cling to our own point of view because it's the closest thing to us. It, it just happens to be our point of view. And this is fine if we're seeing things pretty clearly. But my sense is that we all can't see, see things clearly all the time. We need help. We need the voices and perspectives of others. We live in a polyphonic world, so let's act like we do. So I've tried this experiment on more than one occasion. I take the idea that someone else is um, sharing whatever idea that might be, and even if it's not an idea that I automatically agree with, and then I hold it in my mind just as it is, and I entertain it as if it is just as valid as the previous perspective that just that I just happened to have. And then I try to learn more about it, and I study it, usually by reading far too many books, And but I, I don't judge it. I try not to make a, a, a value judgment on it or try to, you know, force it into a specific conclusion. I just try and 
map the different perspectives that are available to me. Um, and so let's let's use a a simple specific example because this might help. Towards the beginning of last year, I took a lot of time to properly grapple with open theism and in in particular pr- various process theologies. My own perspective has always been a kind of classic theism rooted in the thinking of the patristics and the Catholics. And I'm not going to go into a full discussion of the subject because that, you know, it would take too long. Uh, it actually requ- requires more than just a discussion. It requires several books. But I even managed uh, to imagine how I could shift my perspective to agree with each theological position that was being offered on you know, the nature of God. And each idea about God became, in its own kind of way, its own melody, each one with its own intentions and aims and hopes and dreams, and each melody intertwined and interacted. And then I took a step back, and I, you know, still try to locate myself. Again, I, I said that the, a view from nowhere is not really poss- possible. Uh, so I try to locate myself in this. Um but what I realized, you know, like, and it's something that's only really possible if you adopt this position of the kind that I'm advocating here, which is a polyphonic mind. What I heard was lots of people with their own melodies just trying to figure out who God is. And each in their own way was contributing something beautiful, full of tensions and resonances and, and human consciousnesses. I still have a priority position. There's a melody I prefer, a melody that I think solves more problems than the others do. And and from my perspective, it's not even just a preference. I think, you know, there are logical reasons for adopting it. Although others would still have their own subjectivities in play and they would say, you know, they have logic too. And so what I can say is that after abandoning my own position, I could still return to it. But I return to it just like any sort of hero in the hero's journey returns home. I, I was able to embrace the best options offered by different consciousnesses. I still get to be a classic theist, but I get to be a classic theist who doesn't want to eradicate the lessons that the other argumentative melodies have to offer. In my own way, I feel that I have the, the space and the room to in, enlarge my own horizon of understanding. I can even accommodate other perspectives. And I think I'm also able, as a result of this and other similar exercises, to genuinely listen to and to care about what others think about any given subject. And also, this is the most fantastic thing. I don't have to be right. There are more than a few issues that I'm playing with right now that I simply don't want to resolve, that I want to keep open within me without landing anywhere, but also without ending up nowhere. I have discovered, as I'm sure you have, that some people can't do this or won't do this. Um, They have a homophonic mind and they have no intention of expanding their frame of reference to include other perspectives. Well, my feeling here is that they might be missing out. Um, But again, it's not for me to judge them. Really, in my view, this, this idea of a polyphonic mind is about the idea of not judging. It's really about understanding and not condemning. When we read Job, and when we read the words of his friends, we may feel tempted, mostly by our egos and maybe our superegos, to simply agree or disagree. 
to like or dislike. But Job is a polyphonic text, and as such, I think it is inviting us to have a polyphonic mind, to, to look, to understand, to perceive, to see through the whole thing, but without judging. There's something of, of Rilke's famous line, live the questions, idea here. It's an idea that I think has powerful resonance with the book like the book of Job, which poses so many questions. The idea is to dwell in the various dissonances and overtones and harmonics and textures of the text, to let the text be the text, and to let the voices within the text speak to us. So, for example, if you like what Eliphaz says, cool. If you don't, cool. But it's Eliphaz who is saying it, and he is saying it to Job and us, and I think it would help if we were to just listen. Treat each thing as its own thing with its own unique character, aims, and purpose. It exists in a context for sure, but it still has its own integrity. Don't privilege your own perspective too readily. In doing so, you may accidentally be refusing to listen to what the actual music sounds like. What I think uh, the polyphonic text of Job is encouraging us to do is to have a polyphonic mind to strive to hold multiple perspectives in our horizon of understanding simultaneously. And it, this is not easy, by the way. It takes practice. I don't always get it right, but it's really a, a valuable thing to, to, to work towards. And it is in this interplay of multiple perspectives and consciousnesses and in the melodies of each perspective that the dialogical truths of the text start to emerge. And one of those perspectives just happens to be the question, I'm going to be tackling in the next episode, which is the question of uh, the meaning of life, which dialogically emerges from er, this really profound text. Yeah, I'm going to be looking at the meaning of life. I'm not maybe going to solve it for you, but I hope I, can, I have a few things to say rooted in my own exploration of Job that, that um, really help to elucidate what we should be looking for, at least a few things. So yeah, that's uh, what I have for you in this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, and if you would like to support the Unorthodoxy podcast, I'd really appreciate that. You can do that on Patreon. I'll post a link in the uh, show notes. And don't forget to share this with anyone who you think might find what I have to say beneficial. I'm sure there are a few people who are going to be upset by this idea of having a polyphonic mind because, man, if you're a rigid thinker, it's hard. But, uh, yeah, that's what I have to say. So thanks, everyone. Uh, take care. Cheers. Cheers.